Hi, everyone. This is Michael Cox for the Finding Sustainability podcast. I'm here in D.C. for this week, and today I'm talking with Nate Engel, who is a senior climate change specialist who works at the Water Global Practice in the World Bank Group. And Nate, I met you, I think, in like 2010 or something like that. Sounds about right, yeah. Um, I was finishing up. I, I got my PhD at University, Indiana University. Gosh, I got to get that right in 2010 and i believe you got your phd from the school of natural resources and environment also in 2010 michigan yep in michigan university of michigan ann arbor and then i'm aware that you had a aaas fellowship brought you to tc and then you you went on this path that i think we all want to hear about from there to now having been at the world bank i think for the last six years yeah where you still are mm -hmm. so you know, I think everyone's going to be interested in a lot of our, our guests on this program have tended to be academics, which is great. But for me, a big part of the purpose of this podcast is having what we kind of call a transdisciplinary dialogue, having academics folk talk to non-academic folks kind of get out of the ivory tower. Um, and I think a lot of current PhD students are really interested in different career paths, non-academic career paths. And so I think people are going to be very interested in hearing about your experiences. So that's, I think, where we want to head. Great. But I'd love to just ask you about what experiences you had that led you to Michigan in the first place, either in your undergrad experiences, field work, what was the kind of the different moments or the developments you had that led you to that mm -hmm. stage? Well, goodness. So, yeah, the the my, I was always a science guy. I mean, I always loved science. Uh, so when I did my undergraduate I was uh, an earth science major, and I thought actually I was going to be a teacher. I thought okay. I was going to teach earth science because I loved interacting with people. Um, uh, but for various reasons, uh, actually it was through a teaching course at, at Penn State where I was doing my undergrad. We, uh, you have this kind of curriculum where you interact with, they put you in a, they place you in a class and you have, it's almost like student teaching without being officially a student teacher. You just observe a class or whatever. I got serendipitously placed in a class where it was like a environmental tech school, like a Votech school. Okay. Um, and the professor told me about this program that he runs with another guy in the summers called the conservation leadership school. And this was back in 2000, I guess this is, uh, this was, you know, fairly relatively new, I think in the sustainability field, so to say, I mean, it was still probably like, was that like 10 or 15 years after the the Bruntland Commission and mm -hmm. you know our common future but I still think it really wasn't a big issue yet or at least it wasn't on my on my mind so anyway they invited me to come and be an instructor at this uh, at this summer camp basically for kids to learn about conservation and the big theme was sustainability and through that experience I was I mean I was I was a teacher I mean I was mm -hmm. one of the, the the camp teachers but it exposed me to first of all these two incredibly uh, visionary guys who were running it. George Vahoviak was the one guy who, who, who told me about it. And then this other guy who I consider like the first Renaissance man that I've ever met named Jim Hamilton. They, um, you know, they had a curriculum on sustainability that, you know, most, I think most colleges would, would be excited about even implementing today. And that was two decades preceding their time. So anyway, I, I went through that program. And, and after that, you know, I had two summers there, it was my senior year. And I, I really learned through that process that I wanted to do more about science from an applied side of things. And most, more specifically from doing things on policy. 
um, and, and advocacy. So I worked, when I graduated, I worked as an advocate for environmental issues. I did fundraising for environmental issues and did that for two years. But I quickly realized that, you know, this was during um, the, the George Bush administration when basically we thought all the environmental laws were getting rolled back and policies mm -hmm. and regulations were under threat. And all we were doing really when we were advocating was complaining about the issues. So okay. right. there was not really solutions offered or solution offered. So I got pretty frustrated with that. Was that like trying to motivate people by saying how bad things are going exactly. to get? Exactly. Okay. Yep. Yeah. So, you know, I think the big one was the Clean Air Act, the new source review of the Clean Air Act was getting rolled back. So um, we need you to contribute to make sure that and be a part of this to make sure it doesn't happen. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So in that process, I, I decided to, to go back to graduate school and, and went to the University of Michigan to learn about how to apply my science to policy and okay. actually come up with solutions. And that's what brought me to Michigan. Okay. So there's already like several <laughs> questions that occurred to me. So you mentioned really being interested in teaching and then you had this initial teaching experience. Yeah. And we've not talked a lot actually about the teaching side of things in this podcast before. It's been a lot about research. It's been about practice. Mm -hmm. What initially excited you about the teaching and did you did you find your teaching experience in that initial like summer camp really fulfilling was it were there moments that really struck you or how did you feel about it I love the I love teaching uh first and foremost I love the most the most exciting part to me is the mentoring mm -hmm. um so even though I don't get to teach fast forward to to now yeah, yeah. Uh, officially I do, uh, I, I pride myself on being available to mentor people when they ask for it or to, um, you know, do whatever informational interview comes up. I always do it. And that's very rewarding to me. And I've been mentored a lot in the past um, to get to where I am. And, and I think I've gained a lot from it. So I try to, to pay it back. Um, but in those teaching experience, I think the reason I originally went into the idea that I would teach uh, earth science was I mean, I, I don't think I had any specific reason other than I thought I'd heard somewhere that earth science teachers were in demand and it could be a okay. good job to have. And like I had the skills and it, yeah, I could combine them together. Okay. But it wasn't when I did the, the observation in the class and everything, I realized that it, for some reason, it really didn't feel like it was in my gut what okay. I wanted to do. But at the conservation leadership school, it really was more rewarding. You were in nature, you were in outdoor education, environmental, edu environmental education. And, um, that's something that was quite rewarding. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of teachers, professors, et cetera, would probably say the same thing mm -hmm. that the, the most rewarding aspect of teaching is the mentoring aspects of it. When you can develop closer relationships with, between a mentor and a mentee. Yeah. And I think it, it's harder, I think arguably both for students and teachers when it gets a, I just mentioned to you before we started this interview that I'm enjoying doing these interviews because it feels more artisanal, right? So I think this it, that's also heading in that direction. If you can have like one mentor and one mentee, it feels more personal and more crafted as yeah. opposed to something that, you, I don't know what you want to call it, right? Productivist, which sounds kind of banally yeah. critical. And you have a little bit more say in who you, uh, for the most part, I guess, who you, who you pair up with, who you decide to mentor. I mean, you might get, I don't know how it works at Dartmouth, but maybe you... Maybe you get matched with a specific student, but it, my sense is that you, you kind of feel out that relationship mm -hmm. if it's something you want to go forward with. Um, you, you both decide it yourself. Yeah. Yeah, I think a lot of us who are involved in education, we're basically, you know, it's it can be more frustrating for both students and teachers when you have, you know, suddenly 90 students. This is the great challenge, right? And suddenly I'm kind of hiding behind some PowerPoint slides. Yeah. 
and I'm not really getting to engage with humans. <laughs> yeah. Right. And so like, that's what I think keeps us all, a lot of us going, or maybe everyone is when you can make these human connections with people that's hard to do. And when the ratio is 90 to one. Yeah. I mean, I think maybe for people like us, but my experience in, in, in academia, when I was doing my PhD and doing all the work, I don't think every professor is like that. I mean, I think you're giving fair for most people. I think you're, I think we, I don't want to say, I think, this approaches or this attitude is the exception. Mm-hmm. I hope it's becoming more of the rule. But um, I think you mentioned your last in the last podcast that we were talking about before the interview. You had another guy on from from Michigan, JT. Yeah, yeah. and you were you're mentioning the podcast that the the Michigan had more of a professional focus, like Duke. And I wanted to ask you about that too, about your experiences I, there. Yeah, I can tell you a little bit about that, but I do think that. The, the, the programs that have more of a professional focus are probably those that re- attract more of the professors that are going to be and researchers that are going to be more geared to doing mentoring. It's not just like the basic basic science and basic research and, you know, churn out all the grants and you have a professional focus. I think you get the, the teachers that can kind of bridge the, the disciplines. And that takes to me, I think it takes a sort of skill set where you can you know, be maybe not the oftentimes characterize the quintessential kind of introverted pr- professor. You, you sure. would be a little bit more extroverted, can talk across disciplines, communicate better, and have those 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 skills. So maybe as we move more towards those sorts of programs uh, that are focused broadly on sustainability, for example, yeah. maybe, maybe that this will become more of the rule. Yeah. I mean, I, I actually think you're probably right. I actually view this as one of the big challenges in academia, which – you know, we don't have to talk about academia all that much today since we're in the World Bank building. But, <laughs> it's fine. Um, it could be quite academic here too, so. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's this challenge, it's this organizational challenge of we all have these individual level incentives and a lot of it can be geared towards its research, its grants, it's getting all of that, that whole system going. Um, Which serves a important, per- very important purpose. It serves purpose. a very important purpose, but there's been a lot of, you know, this gets into the issues of metrics and measuring success, et cetera, right? Mm-hmm. So one of the issues you know, I've read about in development is that frequently inputs are measured more than outputs because it's easier to kind of say, oh, well, how many trainings did you have? How many people did you, right? And, and I was looking back through your blog post and report that we're going to get to. And I remember an example from there being, you know, if you if you make the measurement, um, how many people have received some intervention for resilience, et cetera, what that, what that incentivizes people to do is maximize the number of itty bitty little interventions that we have. Sure. Which gets to this, okay, now yeah. we're kind of jumping the yes, gun a lot. Jump but there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is, I mean, this is one of the things I was really excited to talk to you about today because I know you, you think about this is I recently, I was just walking through a bookstore the other day and I found this really in- tantalizingly titled book called The Tyranny of Metrics by mm. this guy, Jerry Muller. And it's kind of all about that stuff. And he mentions uh, this quote unquote law that I saw so you wrote this blog post, and I think the report was also titled "What Cannot Be Measured Must Still Be Managed." Mm-hmm. With I want to get this person's pronunciation. Oh, here you try try it first, and then I'll correct you. <laughs> Stefan Holligott. That's exactly right, Stefan okay. Holligott. Yep. And so you 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 mentioned in that in that report this Campbell's Law, which of course everything has to be called a law. And I've you know there's also Goodhart's Law, which basically says when a measure becomes a target, it ceases to be a good measure. And so there's a lot actually going on there. Mm-hmm. I think there's the initial intuition that once we start to measure things like, you know, for me, grades or, you know, the things I'm aware of, right, publication counts, citations, all these things, 
the first, I think, most intu intuitive issue is that that's going to crowd out a lot of other stuff that we care about because we're only measuring this one thing, hmm. right? So when I think about grades, grades for me are a way to try to get my students to care more and do the things I want them to do, but it's not what I care about. Right. But I, you know, and I lecture at them about this, but then of course I respond in similar ways to like my, I have my own grades, right? Yeah. I just don't call them that. And so, I'm, yeah. you know, there's this question of have we really matured beyond, you know, college level mentalities about some of these issues when we all just have our own grades that we're trying to respond to. Right. And but there, I mean, I think the, the overall take home message is that metrics are, are inevitable. Not only are they going to continue, Sure. They're important. We need them to guide us, right? But I think the broader point you're making in that we make in that paper and that we've tried to push on the resilience agenda in particular here is that metrics have with them, come with them incentives, like you mentioned, and consequences. And they can be, I mean, they can be quite significant consequences if, um, if the incentives are perhaps aligned in the wrong way. So, I mean, you mentioned, you made the one, you gave the one example about doing little bitty interventions to claim that you have a, uh, you can count how many resilience interventions you have. Right. Um, there's also, you know, the danger of, for there, there, there are dangers of, you know, if you want to say, again, on the topic of resilience, um, if you measure the, uh, the amount of um, dollars of investment made resilient, right. and this is an example we use in the paper too, then you might shift attention inadvertently to projects that are protecting more assets or in the richer countries that you're working in. Would the you richer... say expensive projects? Or is Maybe. That not, it, that, this, is a, this is another incentive that if okay. you're counting the amount of finance going into a project, you might, as your goal to have, you know, maximize the amount of project finance deemed that it's helping adaptation or resilience, it, it definitely could send the incentive to do bulkier, heavier infrastructure type investments versus maybe some policy or institutional change that might cost a lot less, right? but build more resilience. And you characterize that as, as another example of measuring inputs as opposed to outputs. Yeah, or measure, yeah, that's on the input side. But even if you measure outcomes that are, you know, like the one I was describing, like dollars of investments made resilient or a number of resilient beneficiaries, mm -hmm. you could, you could be doing, you could be incentivizing projects or sending the signals that what we want to prioritize is our projects where we can count more people being resilient. So maybe the more populous areas or right. areas that have more assets built up um, as opposed to maybe some of the more vulnerable areas where you can't actually quantify the assets because it's mostly you know, livelihoods that you're protecting and not a bunch of infrastructure. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, the, the money example reminds me, going back to the grant issue, I mean, that is an input that I frequently is valued as if it were an output. Mm -hmm. Yeah, finance is definitely an input. Freaking like, well, look at how much grants we got in. And, yeah. you know, another issue there is that many universities are actually dependent on those. And so for some actors, it actually is output-y. Yep. But this, for me, the similar issue is that's a good thing. It is to like get this grant funding. But also, you know, if one university hates more grants than the other, if they're actually doing the same amount of research, then that just means that the university that's got more grants is doing more expensive research or doing it yeah. less efficiently, <laughs> right. which I'm not going to make that claim for certain universities, but it is an interesting thought experiment. Sure. And I'm not, I, and maybe it is happening. Who knows? But the other thing that, yeah, I guess the, 
I mean, we're kind of heading towards what the what the ultimate the ultimate conclusion is of that work of the of the article that we were talking about is it's you know you it's important that you measure the quality of the process right and that's what we have argued um, at least Stefan and I and I think I think the message is resonating more broadly within the institution and other institutions mm-hmm. and we're not the only ones we're not the first ones to say this but you know we we we, we try we're trying to push this agenda where it's rather than focusing, I mean, outcomes are important. We need to know that we're delivering on what we say. Development effectiveness is incredibly important and being able to measure that is is critical. I mm-hmm. mean, there's a lot of, I mean, you're dealing with a lot of money. It's a lot of money from donors, a lot of money from the countries that we call our clients or the ones that we're serving in um, in developing countries. There, and, and it's, you know, they have they have to use the resources parsimoniously because right. they could put it into education or they could put it into building a flood wall. Um, and sometimes those trade-offs need to be made. So we need to know that if they, whichever path they choose, that it's actually de- delivering the outcome. So what we argue is focus on the quality of the, of the, of the project itself, mm-hmm. the quality of what the theory of change is for that project. How does it purport to build resilience in this right. case of resilience? And then, Come up with indicators that are specific to that project so you can measure the outcomes rather than saying we're going to use that resilience indicator that we all develop that's uniform and it, you can compare it across all projects. Right. And we're going to we're going to rate every project on that on that resilience outcome indicator. No, we say rate the quality of the project for how it's incorporated resilience. And then that's what we will report, not on um, not on you know, this, this universal indicator. Right. Yeah. I know there's a lot there. There's so much. We've already got like an agenda for the next 45 minutes easily. So, uh, some of the language that I actually think it'll be helpful for some listeners to get clear on. And I'm frankly still getting clear on it because I see different descriptions. So you mentioned theories of change. Mm -hmm. Some words we've already used include inputs, outputs, outcomes. I know there are sometimes I hear the word impacts. So, So you want me to Go through some of those. Is there like a my third, understanding like a, of them? <laughs> yeah. Is, is there so, like a common lingo so that's used a, here? I mean, you know this probably. There's a whole field that's um, on monitoring and evaluation. Right. Or performance evaluation, as you're referring to. I am not from that field. I did have a. I did go through a, a policy degree program, so we had some derivation of a of a program evaluation course. Right? Yeah, like a, I had like one course on that. Yeah. Kind of thing. And if you that's do cool. anything related to policy. You do you use that, and it might have cost benefit analysis or whatever in, right. embedded. But I've learned more about monitoring and evaluation since I've been at the World Bank, and have had to think very concretely from taking what I did in academia mm-hmm. and my previous life and in, in in research and trying to measure concepts like adaptive capacity and resilience and, oh vulner- and vulnerability, yeah. and actually put my money where the, my mouth is and try to actually implement it in projects, which I've been, I was claiming the World Bank should do and institutions should do in my research. But right. then you actually have to do it. And you're like, okay, how do I actually make this happen? And can I ask you a quick question? Yeah. Which is harder? This. It's easy to write about. It's easy to write about and then have... I'm raising my hand. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is far harder, but it's far more rewarding. Yeah, can you say more? Yeah, like, I mean, it's. I mean, you, you're actually working with... You're, you're working with real projects real money. Not that that's not happening in the academic world, but you're actually, at least in the work I do, it, it, it has a potential to influence broader programmatic um, approaches or programmatic ways that we address address a particular issue. And really, I think um, 
help to move the move the needle. And it's a little bit, yeah, and it's more applied. It's just it's, if yeah. you see the you see how it gets into the project. It's a real thing that's monitored by a project, and it's a real it's a real driver of whether or not the project is deemed successful. Right. So, and then that of course then translates to whether infrastructure got built, whether institution or policy change happened. Right. And you have that direct, you know, that direct contribution. Right. Whereas I feel like in much of research, it's it's a little more indirect. Right. Not always, but. No, I mean, I think that's probably the case for sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I guess I'm just impatient. I just like to bypass that part. No, <laughs> I think that's what is... it is. I'm just a little more impatient. Do you want me though to? Uh, yes, going to, back to, to the to impacts. Tell you about the the terms. Yes, yes, please. <laughs> now that I've. Yeah, so like I was, I was saying, I learned a lot kind of on the job and had to to back into the monitoring evaluation world, and it's some of it's quite scientific. I mean, it's survey methodology research. It's doing you know quasi experimental, sometimes experimental. Uh, research, but when it breaks down to the to the terminology uh, you're asking about, we think of we think of those things that you're talking about: inputs, outputs, and outcomes. Let's just boil it down to those, those three. Okay. We think of those in the context of our project. So, a project for us, um, in the in the most I think in the most common sense, is an investment or a loan or, or a grant that a country takes or is given from the world bank, mm-hmm. um, multi-millions of dollars that then is, it takes about a year to two years to prepare and design the project with the country. Okay. And in that, and then it takes maybe five years to implement and it could be to do various things, most commonly infrastructure or institutional changes. Like I said, could be, um, to develop policies and get mm-hmm. them passed by their legislature. There's various things that we do. And when you're preparing a project, you're developing the theory of change and the results framework. And that's where these concepts come in that we're talking about. Okay. So every project is going to be accountable to a development objective. And if it and it might be a one or two sentences, this project aims to do X, Y, Z. Okay. Be deliver, um, increase water access um, and, and improve sanitation services. Okay. That's what gets evaluated by our independent evaluation group. And by another group another, the World Bank, a separate arm, kind of like the you know the Inspector General kind of thing. Okay. But the independent arm that evaluates every single project and deems whether it was successful um, is based on that objective. Then you have a results framework that intends to be able to show progress towards that objective, so you can measure okay. it against the results framework. Is basically indicators. So you have you know indicators on whether. The sanitation's been improved, whether you've increased access to the water supply in the example I was using. Okay. And that is the whole results framework. The idea about which indicators make sense is supported by this concept of a theory of change. So your theory of change is how does your project intend to contribute to the outcomes? How How is resilience being built through the project? Right. So what are the mechanisms? What are the mechanisms okay. and why do you think resilience is is helping here well in you know example maybe it's because we're diversifying the crops that the farmers right. use so that's you know diversification is a core principle of resilience yeah and that's you know that's the theory it's backed by this research and you bring a lot of research and you bring that stuff in the resilience and, world right. i mean when you talk about theory of change it's not, uh, what i hear is like a, a theory it's a theory, theory it's basically. a theory of how your project will change and right. then the outcomes are the changes you measure so that's what i was going to get to okay. inputs are just what do you put into a project the finance 
staff resources, et cetera. We don't, right. I mean, we measure that, but that's not in the theory of change. Well, I mean, it's not in the results framework. Okay. What we measure in the results framework are the outputs and the outcomes. Outputs are the stuff that comes out of the project. We had workshops, we built pipes, we did this thing, okay. that thing. The outcomes are what we're most interested in. That's the change that happened through the project. Increased, whatever. Improved, whatever. It's an action word that you have some variable of, of, of measuring that. So okay. that's the change is what you what you would call an outcome. Okay. And those are the fundamental pieces that at least your organization within the World Bank uses consistently across all of its projects, interventions, et cetera. Yeah. Is that more or less? Yeah. Okay. So this, this is actually a nice segue to kind of bringing you from Michigan to the World Bank, et cetera. So you got a policy degree from Michigan in 2010. It's actually, so I was talking about being in a policy program. It was 2004 to 2007. So it's Michigan's, I'm going to do a plug for Michigan here. Go so for it. Sorry, all, the, all you Dartmouth listeners. But no, no, no. I'm also Penn State too. So I'm like, I'm a little bit conflicted. Sure. Penn State through and through, but um, but Big Ten all the way. But anyways, I mean, I remember my just I'll, I, one thing I have to say. So I was at Indiana University, where we basically would get stomped by Michigan and like Michigan. But not always State. basketball. Not always, yeah. So, but in football, yeah, that's they would true. just be like, but okay, been Michigan's years, in years, like your Randall L years, when he was, um, yeah, yeah. When I was at Penn State, and he he did some damage. Anyway, yeah, there's Mich always hope. Yes. Um. So so yeah. So I was at Michigan from 2004 to 2007. I started off at the School of Natural Resources and Environment, getting an environmental. Um, basically natural resources environment masters. Okay. But Mich what I was going to say is Michigan's great because, and other schools are probably like this, but you can combine, the, you can do dual degrees. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to do a policy degree from the Ford School of Public Policy. And you can do dual degrees and do two masters in three years instead of four. Okay. So I combined it with a policy degree and I finished in 07 and then continued on to the PhD and finished that in 2010. Okay. Yeah. And how did you like it? So I, you know, the last interview that I did for this podcast was with J.T. Erbaugh. And so he was at, at Michigan in the same school. And w with him, I mentioned that we've talked to a few folks at the Nicholas School at Duke. And so we are talking to a lot of folks that are at these. Yeah, I don't know what the category exactly is for them. Professionally oriented. Interdisciplinary. interdisciplinary. Yeah. So what was my experience like? Yeah. And, and was it affected by that, by that quality? Tremendously. I mean, it was... It was tremendously affected by it. I I think if you are someone who wants to do an academic route, it's a little more challenging because okay. you you come out with this interdisciplinary degree with that I think some people have uh, have characterized as being a little bit less marketable. Like you're not an economist, you're not a geographer, you're not an environmental engineer. So what was the name of your PhD? Like I, I had a PhD in natural resources and environment. Okay. Yeah. I think now it's probably a little easier because they're becoming more common to get a PhD in this area. Right. But I, I valued it tremendously because it's, I mean, it's everything I've wanted to do. I wanted to be able to, 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 the, to the best extent possible, bridge uh, both the social sciences and the natural sciences. And this allowed me to do it because you took classes in, in various different things. Okay. You did have to um, be pretty disciplined on focusing your research, your PhD research on a very specific topic sure. that would have uh, a contribution to, you know, like any PhD would to the field. Yeah. Right, and yeah. for me, it was the field of climate change adaptation. Okay. And so that already is getting us towards, it seems like your current position here and the roles you're doing here. I mean, can you describe like how your, P your dissertation experience went and then how that moved you to, 
you know, whether it's AAAS, it's the next kind of obvious step in your own mm -hmm. narrative path and get, getting you to the World Bank? Yeah. So when I decided to stick around at, uh, at Michigan to finish my PhD, I always had in my mind that I... I, that I, I I probably didn't want to do the academic route, but I wanted to keep the option open. Right, and I still do. I mean, I'm, I I'd never, I I tried to never close doors if sure, you don't yeah. have to. So, and I and like I said, I like teaching. Well, like resilience mentoring. right comes from a diversity of options. Exactly, so there you go. keep the options open. But I really, I, I mean, envision someday maybe going back and being a professor or. Or, or resident um, lecturer, or whatever it is, but going back and having that, you know, still having the credibility of having gotten the PhD or whatever. And I knew that if I wanted to do something where it was more applied, um, having the credibility of having a technical back, you know, that technical research right. background was important. But I always knew in the back of my mind that I wanted to, I wanted to do something applied. And I had heard about the AAAS fellowship because I had two, I mean, talk about mentorship. I had two of the of what I think are the best advisors and mentors throughout my master's and then my PhD. And I was just so fortunate, but one, I would say is a little bit more research focused Maria Carmen Lemos. Um, she, she, uh, you know, she was, she was doing research on the issue of drought and, and, um, and climate change adaptation. And I kind of went, you know, went, did the field work with her and was her research assistant, but I was also a research assistant and close to my other advisor who was Rosina Bierbaum, who was in a more of a, she was the dean and she was more of a kind of policy visionary and, and a strategist and how to bring people together around the field of climate change adaptation. Okay. So I, 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 I want to believe at least that I've, I, I was able to kind of blend both of those in my PhD work. Okay. And then um, Rosina had done a AAAS fellowship back in the early days of the fellowship and had, I'd, I'd been informed of it when I first came as a master's student that she had done it. And kind of ever since then, it just sounded like such an amazing opportunity. And I was, yeah. you know, I had, had it in the, in the forefront of my mind the entire time. That, that's something I want to do. Right. I want to be able to use it and work on policy. I want to go and work on the Capitol Hill and, and, and work with policymakers and get kind of into that nitty gritty. Yeah, yeah. And then I did. That's what the next, well, I actually wasn't the next step. I, I did a postdoc. So I did the traditional kind of postdoc at University of like Maryland. Research-oriented postdoc. Yeah, I was research and policy oriented around vulnerability assessment. Okay. Um, with a guy named Richard Moss, who's, who's who's also fantastic. But I did that for a year and then got the fellowship, and I worked. You know, totally totally different world where the sure, PhD yeah. doesn't matter. Or really? That's, actually, yeah. opposite. I was telling someone else today earlier that, in many ways, it is almost a detriment to have it. I don't want to say officially, but I didn't put it on my on my uh, my my business card when yeah. I was working on Capitol Hill. Okay, because I feel like it's kind of this. You get the impression, oh, this person doesn't know politics or policy because they're they're scientists, you know? right? So you don't advertise it like you would in 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 most other places, right? So it's a strong label as belonging to a certain type of group that has this stereotype. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, and it was one, it was one one of the only situations I've ever been where. You know, I, 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 I didn't, I didn't hide it. I mean, people knew, right, but it yeah, wasn't right. like I was putting it on my business card. Right. Yeah. But I was a science fellow and I was a science advisor to the senator I worked for. So he knew that that's what he, you know. And which that, senator? Uh, senator Harry Reid from Nevada. Okay. He was okay. the majority leader at the time. Okay. And so what were your activities uh, in that fellowship? 
So he came to me for, for various issues around science. And this is where the interdisciplinary background, I think, comes, comes into, comes handy, comes yeah. in handy. Yeah. The first issue I worked on was prescription drugs and how to, how to, um, rescue, um, help, help to address rare and, um, abandoned diseases. I think it was what the term was okay. with repurposing, um, orphan drugs, like drugs that would, um, uh, you know, maybe did not go well in a trial for one application, mm -hmm. but you could you could use them potentially to fight another application, okay, or repurpose them for something else if they were already effective or something else. Okay, so I was on that, and then it was the farm bill and working on agriculture policy, and then I was what was that like? Oh, that was so one of the one of the most interesting experiences from that whole from my whole time um, working in the Senate was was being able to work on actually negotiating with um, with the, within the committee and with within um, between the two parties policy amendments and what the what the bill is going to look like so I got to see that I got to be a part of that in a way that um, that you I guess you don't many people don't see like sure. that, that that process is, is, is quite fascinating um, it's a lot of hard work a lot of long hours people put in um, and a lot of believe it or not, collegiality. I mean, there's a lot of rancor that you see on the outside, especially right. now. And I don't know, I don't want to pretend to know what it is like in Capitol Hill now, but right. even then, that was 2010 and 2011. This was, uh, and I'm using quotes here, the Tea Party movement had just taken off. There was a whole so that was house flipped to the, to, the, to the Republicans in 2010, right. but the Senate was still controlled by Democrats. So there was a lot of, a lot of, um, on the outside, a lot of you know frustration, but stuff still happened on the inside. Right. You still were able to kind of have those conversations across uh, party lines, and 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 to see that happen was 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 really interesting. I mean, it reminds me a little bit of the issue of publication bias in academia, right? Like, what's, there's always like the soup of what, how things what's happening within, and then but then what you see on the outside is just like what gets published, and so you always want to kind of know like what's the process that creates a divergence between those two. So I've wondered yeah. sometimes, right, what is the Capitol Hill's version of publication bias, whether it's, you know, mm -hmm. what makes it onto CNN versus what actually is happening, you know, in the hallways, et cetera. It's so much happens. I mean, there's so much work, I think, that goes, uh, you know, it was left for another day, let's say that. I mean, there's, Interesting. there's okay. I mean, even if it's, even if there's a, 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 a bill that's, or an amendment to a bill that you've worked on, you've drafted with legislative council, you have it in your hand, it may or may not actually come up for vote on the floor. Right. And even if it does, it might get um, tabled or it ends up getting not passed and then it sits for a while. Maybe someone else will pick it up. There's actually a really cool example that I worked on this. Um, so the, the Senator Reed, sorry to get into a little bit of the weeds for your listeners here on the if they don't know um, how the, the the kind of the majority leader functions, no, but but he, stuff. everyone is designed is designated to committees. All senators, all uh, members of the house, or they sit on committees. Right. I, do, I forget exactly how it works on the house side, but in the senate side, at least, if you're majority or minority leader, um, in this case now present day Mitch McConnell, mm -hmm. and then Chuck Schumer on the Democratic side, you don't sit on a committee. You're basically orchestrating what's coming up. You're negotiating what's coming up on the floor. Okay. You're 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 meeting with your members. You're helping members with their 
what are their policy priorities. So you you have no formal role in the committee process where a lot of the bills get debated and okay. initially, but you you could very well have your hand in almost everything. Sure. So I worked with um, some of Senator Kerry's staff when I was when I was there on this um, resilience bill. So I got to do something actually related where we were. Okay, fascinating. Was, yeah, we, it was called the Strong Act. And I, I think it was called Strengthening the Resilience of, of the Nation. I forget what the G was for. Okay. I don't know what the we can look it up and post it along yeah, with yeah. But that was that was um, that was a lot of the work that we did. I mean, we worked on that together, and um, and then it it didn't pass. But then I believe it actually, I believe it was up for someone else took it on recently within the last two years maybe or three years. Okay. And the language I looked at it. I don't know if it passed, but it was definitely put forward again as a as a as a bill, and it's out there. It's survived, and a lot of language is still the same. So these things kind of get. Okay. Built on and recycled, and I mean that's got to be somewhat gratifying, I suppose. That like things that yeah, yeah, yeah it's very gratifying because again, a lot of the stuff you do, uh, a lot of a lot of the um, the policies you work on or the legislation that's being worked on doesn't make it that far. Right. Yeah. Yeah. At least in my experience, I should note I was just there for you know a little over a year. Sure. Maybe fourteen, fifteen months. And so it sounds like that was a foray for you into, you know, literally politics. So not politics as like a pejorative or a dirty word, but simply the act of engaging with a bunch of parties Absolutely. with different interests to try to figure out how you get to mutual goals or, or it was a, it was who's getting what. Incredibly political. Yeah. yeah. And I loved it. You loved it. It was yeah. it was great. I mean, it was nice to 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 have this the the science element to kind of ground me in the work. But what I loved the most of the experience was to kind of see the the positioning and the politicking between. Um, so you were analytical about it too, in addition to like. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know if I was like formally analytical, but I definitely observed a lot. Yeah, and I yeah. learned a lot. And that to me was the most rewarding part of the experience in addition to getting any legislation kind of advanced to yeah. the next step. It was learning about the politics and believe it or not, the procedure part. So the three P's in, in the whole way that the Congress works is the politics, policy, and procedure. You learn this first day of your fellowship, basically. Okay. And the procedure is really arcane. How do things come to the floor? What are the rules of the Senate for what goes, what doesn't, how that happens? And it's a it's an art and a science. That must dictate a lot. It does. And yeah. if you don't understand the procedure, if you're not a master of that, then you're not an effective majority leader. Active. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. So you brought that experience on board. You mentioned resilience again. I really want to have, before we're done, a conversation sure. just about resilience. Yeah. Because, um, you know, of course, we met at a Resilience Alliance meeting. In Arizona. In Arizona. So you were at AAAS, and then, you know, what was the step from there to, so you had, your you're at University of Michigan, I mean, University of Michigan, University of Maryland, College Park, AAAS, and then what was the next step uh, to get to the World Bank from there? So in between, when I was doing my PhD, I was actually, my one advisor I was mentioning, Rosina, was, um, was tasked with and, and, and asked and recruited to do the World Development Report to co-chair it with um, a woman named Marianne Fay, who's, who was the chief economist for a while now um, for the Sustainable Development Vice Presidency here. Okay. Um, but at the time, she was not, and she and, but she was, a, she was an economist that was asked to chair the World Development Report on climate change that year. That this was, is something that regularly happens? Yeah, like, I was gonna, yeah so the, the World Development Report is 
one of the flagship reports that the World Bank puts out every year on a topic. Okay. It could be social inclusion or you know, big data or whatever. Right. Um, I f- I'm, I'm forgetting exactly. You can easily go and look up. Sounds pretty work- Googleable, yeah. Yep, very Googleable. But the 2010 World Development Report was on climate change. Okay. This is the first time the World Bank was really taking on the issue. And I, I came along with her and did, I was a research assistant. So okay. I, um, I, I worked here in D.C. on and off for, on that report for about a year and a half. And when I was coming out of the Senate, so fast forward to when I was coming out of the Senate, I was looking to what do I want to do now that I did right. what I wanted to do. I thought for a little while I was staying there and actually staying on Capitol Hill. Like on Capitol, yeah, yeah. It's um, it's it's fast. Like I said, a fascinating place to to work. Keep on working with the three P's for a while. Maybe, yeah, the the, the three P's. But I, uh, for various reasons, it it wasn't the right decision. And okay, um, the World Bank came back to my mind, and I thought, hey, maybe I'll just reach out to a couple of people who I was working with before. One thing led to another. One, well, I, I was I had a couple conversations with people about okay. potentially coming on, right? And, doing a consultancy or something like sure. that. But the one that really clicked was uh, on a project that, and this never happens, I, I, I was just so, I was so lucky. It was a project that combined what I did in my master's research mm-hmm. with what I did in my PhD research. So my master's research was on water management in Brazil. Okay. My PhD was on drought policy and management in the United States. So this project was on drought in Brazil. And they, Boom. it was a perfect fit. And so I, I worked on that and, and then, you know, had a, had a program with the guy that recruited me for a couple of years and then have since kind of moved in the normal progression that the World Bank has where you kind of move into a new role every three or five years. Okay. So I moved over to the climate change group from the, I was in the water practice, moved to the climate change group and moved back to a different role now in the water practice. Okay. Yeah. Is there overlap between those two groups or is it just kind of different mini worlds within the world? There's bank? definitely overlap. Yeah, there's okay. definitely overlap. So the climate change group where I did a lot of this resilience work that we're talking about on mm-hmm. the indicators is is not one of these groups like the water practice that is working with countries on loans directly. Okay. So the, the practices, whether it's water or education, um, agriculture, there's 14 or so. They're the ones that have the they're the inter, they're the client facing ones that will go into the field to develop the project. They right. you know they help to kind of manage the budget and and then make sure the loan goes and then they oversee it and supervise it. Uh, I'm doing more of that now, mm-hmm. but the climate change group doesn't have that function. The function of the climate change group is really it's called a cross cutting solutions group. So their 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 mandate is to make sure that. I mean, effectively, that climate change is integrated into everything that we do here at the World Bank. At the World Bank. Okay. Yeah. So they're they're doing more on the on the on the corporate commitments side of things, um, setting, helping to set what targets are going to happen for the World Bank, how many projects we'll do that have climate finance, and those things we're talking about with indicators. Yeah. Analytical work, some of the more cutting edge analytical work that comes out on climate is through the climate change group. Okay. Um, and then other strategic discussions on climate. Okay, yeah, it sounds like it's kind of like lot. our external facing um, unit too. When when we're talking about going to the um, UNFCCC meetings or or, or the, the the New York climate events, like climate folks week. from that group attend those meetings. Yeah. Okay. How big is the the practice and then the in the climate change group? Are these a dozen <laughs> people? Dozens and how? Yeah, I want to see how many you think. Take a guess. Oh gosh, this is going to be embarrassing. 
climate change group um sounds like they do a lot so i'll say 50 the water practice 30 uh, so they're both about the same okay but multiply the first by about four so 200 oh, or so okay on each now the climate change group's all based here in dc okay the water practice has i think maybe 300 maybe closer to 300 staff okay. and these aren't also consultants these are staff members who are they're 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 full spread time. out full yeah. time spread out all throughout the world okay with about 50 percent or so here in dc okay so there we have offices in most countries and a lot of those countries if there's a program with the government that has a water component to it right there will often be a water staff member in that office permanently yeah interesting okay and you were you were traveling a bit in the last year, or so was that to go to like a regional office and yeah. engage with them about what they're doing in that yeah. country? Yeah. So I've never been. I've been here since 2012. I've never been based in a. I've never been based in a country office. Right. I've always or the field as it's called. I've been based only here in Washington, but I do. There are plenty of people who are involved with this operational work I'm talking about, like working with the loans right. and investments, who are based in Washington D.C. and they just they're like road warriors. They're traveling. 50% of the time. Wow. So luckily in my role, at least for my interests and not having to be gone all the time, yeah. I, um, I, I sit in what's called the global unit in water. So I do a little bit on the corporate commitment side of things from climate perspective. I do a little bit on the analytical work. And I also then offer support to teams on drought policy okay. and management. So the travel you're referring to is I've um, I'm helping on some of these investments where we're working with countries right now. It's um, Botswana and Eswatini, which is uh, formerly Swaziland. Okay. To to use the loan that we have with them to develop drought preparedness program. So how do they more proactively deal with droughts? Okay. So that's that's what a lot of the travel has been. Okay. And I was my next question was kind of be and you're kind of you started to answer this i think is you know what are your day-to-day -day activities like what is your kind of working life look like here you it sounds like you do several different things how much do you and related to like what is what is your a day to a regular day for you look like how much do you engage in research oriented activities right so thinking about you mentioned in order to come up with a theory of change you know i suppose in my mind ideally you're engaging with scholarly literature or something like that so what is your day-to-day -day activities look like and then how much does it reflect you know your background with a phd and i'll add on one more question yeah. is you know do a lot of people around here have phds like what's the culture here with respect to that kind of identification so wherever so, you want to go with that no stuff. so that's the, the the days are the days are quite diverse it sounds it's gonna sound boring probably but it's it's not anyone not, not no one's well. life makes a good movie really right <laughs> it's, it's I mean, it's more exciting when you're out on a mission in the field, going to visit sites, making sure that the infrastructure is being built and the safeguards right. are being met. And that's, that's I travel and, and I'm involved with those sorts of things once every two or three months. Okay. That's but, fairly often, actually. Yeah, I think, I think for a week and a week and a half for two weeks, every three months or so is about right. Okay. But for the day-to-day -day work here is you're writing, you're on the phone, you're in meetings, um, you're sometimes attending what we call brown bag lunches or these events where it'll be a seminar where an academic will come in or someone from a, a, a think tank 
and share research and sure. then discuss. I mean, there's a lot That's of cool. stimulating events you can go to. There's so much being done here. Yeah. You you asked about if there's a lot of PhDs. I'd say, I don't know what the breakdown is, but there are a lot of people who have PhDs. Mm-hmm. And it's one of the only places, I think, outside of academia where there actually is a, a real premium on, on it. Like, like a market premium, basically. Yeah, that you need. You don't need it to right. work here, but it's definitely to your advantage. And there's plenty of people who only, um, and I'm using air quotes here, only have masters that feel like it's not enough and they need to go back and get a PhD. They seeing a bit of a glass ceiling without a bit, that You can. It's not It's not 100% set like that, but okay. it is one of those places that's pretty rare where a PhD can matter. Yeah. Um, so you are around a lot of... I, I, I often compare it to ac- the academic world because it is a lot... There are a lot of... Um, new ideas being generated. There's a lot of original research, particularly economic and policy research. Right. I'm not as much involved with that to answer your question, but okay. I do get into set, setting up um, new tools and methodologies and decision support systems and things like that that would that could be published. I could right. publish about them. Um, but there is a lot of original research. There's a lot of smart people around here, uh, brilliant people. And one of the coolest reasons of, working here is that there's a lot of a lot of really wonderful people to learn from but mm-hmm. so diverse i mean you have yeah. people from all over the world um and we've eaten in the cafeteria you know what it's yeah, like. yeah food yeah. from all regions and it's it's just a, a a very inspiring place to work okay wow terrific yeah and so you've mentioned the word resilient several times and so i'll kind of try to use that concept to come full circle here because again we met at a Basically, I would call it a workshop before a resilience meeting in Arizona of the, the Resilience Alliance. That's what I remember. Raise? Raise, the Resilience Alliance Young Scholars. Are they still around? There, there's a new cohort, I think, I heard. Are yeah. You? Okay. I'm, I haven't engaged much in that community in the last couple of years. Yeah, but I've my been colleague, a little disengaged, too. But uh, that's great to hear. Yeah, no, I mean, it's for me, it was like one of those first senses. I had this like really strong sense of personal, actual community, which I think we all kind of need from somewhere. Yes. And so that's the first place I got it, for yeah. sure. Yeah, it was a good group. I remember that very vividly. That was a, that was a great trip. Yeah, I was talking to a colleague of mine, Mike Schoon, at Arizona oh, yeah. State University. and We published um, an article together. You and Mike did. Yeah, it was like on politics of ecosystems, resilience, or something like that. Which that sounds was, about right. Yeah, I must yeah. with with like Uncy Biggs or other people Chanda, also. Oh, Chan, Chanda, Chanda Meek? Chanda Meek, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And, and Michael, and there was, oh, I'm, there was one other... I think you're going to be in trouble for forgetting who else was on that paper. No worries. We'll post but the that link was, to it. But that was facilitated through the connections we made at that workshop. Yeah. And just the interests that we had. And I think we were at an event during the night. It was a campfire or something. We talked about this idea of politics not being really so much in the dialogue or on the resilience side. Sure. And that's where the paper came from. But anyway, sorry. I think mean, it's the best way for things, these things <laughs> to happen. No, I mean, it's... I mean, I think we think about... I think it's helpful to reflect on how individually, you know, how I got to where I am, how you got to where you are, et cetera. And I think for me, an inevitable part of the answer is that I went to a certain event or whatever it is, and I met these certain people. And I just, it's your, what happens to you or me or anyone is such a, it's so dependent on who we bump into and who we're able to access and who we're able to talk to. I couldn't agree with you more. Hmm. And that's why you take advantage of all those interactions and, and, and just try to get, you know, get the most out of an experience when you're meeting someone. And I think that that's, that's what this is all. That's what, I don't know, philosophical, but that's what life's about, right? 
Connections. Yeah. 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 I totally agree. Yeah. So connectivity, another principle of resilience, right? Yes. So, so we were at this resilience meeting and then you've, you know, I remember a part of the discourse of the resilience Alliance was that you had these fairly abstract academic pieces about resilience, Mm -hmm. you know? And so there's the 2002 book on panarchy with this really like, the uh, infinity sign the infinity sign really seductive you know i remember just feeling like almost religious about these ideas right like oh let's get away from command and control and efficiency and optimization and more be more flexible and adaptive adaptability and learn from growth yeah all yeah. of these things it's like who wouldn't like all of those things that just sounds wonderful yeah, and then you try to apply it to social systems right yeah and so for a long time you know i, I had this initial phase where i was really just in love with the ideas but then I had to do a dissertation. So it's like, how do you actually measure these things, getting into measurement? Mm-hmm. And it was, it always felt like, you know, I think, and this can be a challenge within scholarly circles, is that it's easier to kind of, we're all very good at like writing about these complex ideas. But when it comes to like getting out into the world and measuring these things, that frequently is actually where the bottleneck is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Because I remember just people struggling with how do you actually measure resilience? And there is some interesting literature on trying to predict shifts like when you're actually about to cross like a, a threshold, tipping point or threshold. Yeah, that, that kind of thing did you end up working on the measurement side too no i i haven't no okay. no I've, I've not formally engaged in like how do you measure these things really at all which is why i'm particularly well interested. you should you have the yes. opportunity to sure well i grant. mean I'm, I'm here for inspiration so <laughs> um but so you've had to i mean right as you mentioned earlier you've had to actually you've th- these have been forced decisions for you it's not something you can kind of contemplate it seems you actually have to make a decision about how to measure some of these things because it's going to be the basis for something that happens in the world. Yep. Yep. So I, I think that's a very different and, and valuable situation to be in because then you actually have to do something. It's much more, it's humbling because I, I mean, if I go back and read what I wrote from my dissertation, I mean, sure, some people cite it. Right. And that's rewarding. But when I go back and read what I thought was what I thought the research was telling me or what I, what I, what I learned. And then I was kind of extrapolating to policy and thought this had policy application. And then you actually, and then you actually are in a situation like this where you have to apply it. Right. You know, I don't, I don't necessarily think that, that, that the, what I was saying was wrong, but it was naive. Right. You're naive. Predictably. um, Yeah. Until you have to do it. Right. So it's grounding, it's humbling. Um, but like I said, it's really rewarding though when you when you can get, kind of get past those, you you get past that you feel like you need to be you need to have been right and you couldn't have been wrong. Right. And then you can say, okay, well, how do I actually put that aside? I thought I'd never come back to this issue after working, like we were talking about, working in the Senate and then coming back to the World Bank. I thought, okay, great, it's kind of a fresh start. I can work on a bunch of different issues, still keep a resilience focus, but. That measurement stuff oh, I'd be able to get away from, but no, yeah. it's, 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 it's such a challenge. It's followed me all along because it's something that's, it's going to be a persistent challenge. And there's, I don't think there's an easy solution, but, uh, but, but yeah, I did think that I was away from it for a little while, but now it's, it's, it's still there. It's still there with you. Yeah. Yeah. So with respect to measurements, you said something very interesting, maybe 40 minutes ago, which was this idea that, of this idea of a non-universal indicator, you mm-hmm. can maybe call it. Yep. And I think because I think for a lot of people, the intuitive appeal of a, an indicator is that it's assumed to be somewhat that, that it's universalizing. Mm. 
right? And so when we talk about trying to create comparative data, that's, that, that, that idea is a strong part of that discourse. And so it sounds like... But, what, but it shouldn't be for resilience. But it shouldn't be for, for resilience. Yeah. That's why. That's what I say. Okay. Is it something about resilience per se? I think or is it's, it... I think, I th yeah, I do think there's something about resilience per se. I think it's an extremely complex concept yeah. that everyone has their own definition for. And the easy solution to that is people to say, okay, we'll come up with a universal definition. What is right. your what is the World Bank's definition for resilience? You will not find one. And uh, you'll probably There's find not some glossy page with just like you'll your... find dozens. Okay, well let's define it through an indicator. Then that'll be the definition. But that doesn't that hasn't worked either. No one can agree on what the indicator could be. So then if you have a concept that is extremely complex, what part of resilience what so what builds resilience in an agricultural project, through an agricultural project that we're doing, versus one that's focused on transport right. or building a road. Right. The concepts that are important from a, from, from a resilience perspective, I would say that you want to draw from for either of those in a agriculture project, like I said earlier, might be crop diversification, income, livelihood diversification. You might right. want to have drought-resistant seed varietals or whatever. Those are principles that are very different than the robustness that's also part of resilience mm -hmm. or the, you know, concepts around integrated networks uh, on a road system mm -hmm. that you don't want to fail when uh, an event hits or you want to be able to build flexibility in the system right. when a flood comes so it can get flooded and not erode away. Okay, Those are very different concepts between the two types of things. So if you come up, want to develop a universal indicator for what resilience is to be comparing across sectors and projects, let alone even within the same sector, they're going to be, you're not going to be able to capture that. Right. There's too much nuance. There's too much context specificity. Okay. So I don't think that means that you shouldn't measure. I think you should measure as specific to the project. And if you want something, my whole point is if you want something that's comparable, that you want to be able to talk about how one project compares to another on resilience. Right. This one did better maybe. Why do we think so? So we let's compare them or something. Or what we're talking about is rating uh, or, or putting a measurement or some sort of assessment on the quality of the project right. design uh -huh. for delivering resilience. And that's what I'm talking about, rating the quality, um, the transparency. That was your answering, actually getting to the quality. Yep. That's, and that's what, that's what we're, we're trying to do now as an institution. We've agreed um, at, the, at the last COP in Poland, we announced um, a set of 2020 to 2025 commitments that the institution will do. One of them was to rate all of our projects on resilience. Mm -hmm. And the rating system that's being developed that I'm now in charge of, like implementing it on the water side, oh, wow. all the different sectors are, are coming up with what they're going to do. But the general principle is to rate, rate projects on two dimensions. One's calling the resilience of the project. But this translates to really how transparently did resilience, did climate change risks and other disaster risks get incorporated into the design of the of the project from the perspective of um, standards that were used, right. design standards, or um, what goes into every project here more or less is an economic and financial analysis. Okay. Were those risks incorporated to help inform whether this the project goes forward or not, okay. basically? So that's the resilience of the project, because then you have more confidence of whether the project will or will not Lead be able to, to, to deliver on what it's intending to. Okay. And then the other one is the resilience. The other dimension is the resilience through the project, which is 
what is not just about the project boundaries itself, but what broader contribution, and this is where the theory of change matters a lot, what is the broader contribution of this project to overall resilience of the community, of the asset class, of the ecosystem, right. and so on? What's the transformational impact that project will have? Okay. Um, so we're all these sectors, we're working on how to how to develop that system so that we can apply it to each of our projects and then be more transparent about it. And a whole other topic we haven't talked about that I think is worthy at some point of you and I having a conversation about is really how you get private sector involved with, with resilience and adaptation sure. agenda. That's been a huge topic, a big kind of enigma. No one knows how to do it. Um, but one, one way to do it, at least from institutional investors, is if you have this set of projects you feel gets higher ratings because they're, they're doing either more beneficial resilience uh, building work. You see, have institution um, like uh, what are they called? Social impact investors. Sure. So they want to be able to deliver. Uh, you know, you have a good you know, have a good story to tell. So they're investing in all these great benefits for resilience. Or you have um, uh, institutional investors that want a portfolio that has a set of projects that are not going to fail when a hurricane hits, right. or they're going to less like they're more confident that those those projects are going to be actually delivered in their portfolio and they're not going to lose them. Right. So this is the concept of like a resilient bond or a resilient asset class. Okay. So anyway, that's probably a There's little a deep there. topic yeah, yeah. to end on. But We'll but, do interview round two in a year maybe. Yeah, maybe we can come back to that. So two final questions, I promise. One is, is you know, this idea, in, when you mentioned having these like site or sector specific indicators, it sounds like that's kind of the middle way between generality and specificity. I mean, that's is that idea. kind of the way to have our cake and eat it too? That you've got indicators that are specific to a site, but there's some kind of family resemblance between them and other indicators that you might also put under like the resilience rubric other places? Is yeah, that that's my point is that rather than starting with the goal of having them being able to be compared, if you have a collection of projects that are in the same sector, they happen to have similar theories of change and you're using a same indicators just because they make sense across the two projects you could aggregate you could have an aggregate set of comparable indicators but that's not the immediate goal the immediate goal is to make sure you're tracking the progress in the project the right project is going well but in a dozen years from now you might have a set of those indicators that are common that you could compare against and tell a tell a, a story okay. across indicators okay final question then is when you talk about measuring the quality of something you know, there is this traditional distinction that we haven't brought up today, but it's it's pretty big in the literature between, say, technical knowledge and local implicit mm -hmm. knowledge. Mm -hmm. You know, is is measuring the quality of something the way you're describing it kind of evoking the second aspect of it, where you kind of have some expert with a lot of informal knowledge about a project and you at least include, and maybe this is just standard procedure and I'm just ignorant of it, that part of the measurement is really like a qualitative interpretation of a project by someone who we would expect to have a lot of that local knowledge? It could be. I think it, I think it's something that lends itself more to incorporating that knowledge. Okay. Yeah, it, it's because it's it's you need to know what the project's doing. And yeah. um, in developing a project, you're always involving the communities. So right. uh, that knowledge can be better incorporated. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. All right. Uh, <laughs> is there anything else that you want to mention? No, I think this was, point was a lot to. of fun. No, I think this was this was really a lot of fun. I look forward to the next year's talk. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we make this an annual thing. That's right. This is great. Cool. Great, Nate. Well, thanks again. Thank you. Uh, until next time. All right. Take care. 
If you enjoyed this episode of the Finding Sustainability podcast, please feel free to share it with friends, colleagues, and on social media. You can find us on Twitter at find underscore sust underscore pod, or you can visit our website www.essnetwork.net forward slash podcast. On the website, you'll find a content and guest request form. Here we invite you to submit recommendations for content and guests you would like to hear on the podcast. The podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher, and can also be streamed from our website. This podcast is part of the Environmental Social Science Network. For more information about the network and how to get involved, please visit our website, www.essnetwork.net. Thank you for supporting the podcast.